Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have the privilege of singing about the resurrection and and then reading your word as you tell us that you raised your son, Jesus, from the dead, and you then tell us the significance of what that means. And I pray, Father, that we would rejoice in that, that you've done, and what it has accomplished in our lives. And I pray, Father, for anyone among us that does not know Jesus uh, in a way that has resulted in their eternal salvation, I pray, Father, that even this morning, you would turn their eyes to you, that they would have life, eternal life from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last couple of decades, the Boston sports teams have had an amazing run of success. And during a number of these uh, treks toward championships, there have been periods of time where the team was on the verge of elimination. Some of these are more painful for some of you than, than others. I won't mention all of them. But in 2004 the Red Sox were in the American League Championship Series and they were up against the New York Yankees and they were losing that series three games to zero. Now it's a seven-game series, so fourth game, whoever wins the fourth game first wins the series. So they were winning, uh, losing, the Red Sox were losing to the Yankees three games to zero and it was the bottom of the ninth, four to three, Yankees were winning and the best Closer in baseball history, Mariana Rivera, was on the mound. The odds of the Red Sox winning the series, I can't even imagine what the number is. It had to have been so minuscule, less than 1% of a chance for them to win this series. And yet, in the bottom of the ninth, they worked, they worked a walk, then they stole a base, and then there was a base hit. To, to tie the game, and then they ended up winning the game later in that game, uh, and then they en- ended up winning the entire series and then going on to win the World Series in 2004. So improbable. It was a statistically improbable victory. There are also impossibilities. That was not an impossibility. It was just statistically improbable. But there are Im- uh, impossibilities. I don't know if you know this, but I cannot jump to the moon. I can't. I could try really hard. I could train all I wanted to. I could, I could stop eating pizza. I still would not be able to jump to the moon. I cannot speak light into existence. I cannot be in two different places at one time. It's not possible. I can't raise the dead. I have no authority... No power to bring life into someone. This is an impossibility. God, however, specializes in the impossible. God is the God of the impossible. God created the world in the Latin phrase ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing. God spoke, 
and there was something. This is unfathomable and incredible. It is impossible except for an almighty God. God spoke light into existence. You remember that in the creation account? Let there be light. And what does the next sentence say? And there was light. This is incredible. You can't do that. Now you may have a computer program where someone has already installed wires in your house and you have a light bulb and you attach some kind of computer program and you walk into the room and say, light and the light comes on. Okay, I I know that some of that technology exists. But you cannot go out into a field somewhere where there is no electricity without a, a flashlight or a lamp or a lantern and simply speak and light comes forth. You can't do it. But God can. God gives life because He is life. Not only can God breathe into man's nostrils the breath of life so that man becomes a living spirit, He can make a spiritually dead person come to life. He can take a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins and raise them to life. It takes a supernatural work to accomplish this. This morning, as we worship God, our worship will revolve around God's divine power that brings life where there is death. Our worship will revolve around God's divine power that brings life where there is death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential element of the gospel. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Please look there with me at verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, where Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you had a fake belief, unless you believed in vain, unless it was only a surface belief, unless it was only a belief that was not deeply rooted. You remember the parable of the sower and the seeds? And the sower went out to sow, and he threw the seed out, And some of the seed fell on hard ground where the uh, ravens came by and ate the seed and it wasn't any good anymore. But some fell on rocky soil. Some fell among the thorns. And something stirred up. Something grew. There was some kind of a responsiveness, but it was not a real and fruitful responsiveness. It was not a, a saving kind of responsiveness. It was a fake or a vain belief. He says... I want to talk to you about the gospel that you believe, the gospel that you stand in, the gospel that will eventually bring about your full and final salvation if you are truly one who has embraced the gospel, not one who has a fake belief. And here's what that gospel is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He died for 
our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We want to talk about this Gospel. This Gospel that is, is a Gospel with no power unless... Jesus rose from the dead. A gospel that is vain unless Jesus rose from the dead. A gospel that offers you no hope unless Jesus rose from the dead. That's the gospel I want to talk to you about this morning because it's the gospel that is conveyed in the Scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. It gets progressively and progressively uh, clearer, more well-defined, easily, more easily understood as we get closer and closer to the end of the Bible. The Gospel. The first element of our discussion this morning is this. The Scriptures proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Gospel, in verse 3, I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. That's what we celebrated on Friday evening as the Lord Jesus was brought as a lamb before the, the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He, as Isaiah 53 says, he bore our iniquities, our griefs, so he might take away our transgressions. He, he bore our sin on the cross. That's what happens on Friday as he hangs on the cross. God placing the sin of, of people, of all generations, of every ethnic variety upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He placed that sin on Jesus. Jesus bore the weight of that sin because He became sin for us. Jesus bore the guilt and condemnation for that sin and God poured out a just judgment. A just judgment against sin on Jesus on the cross. That's Friday. There was a three-hour period where the sky was black or dark. There was a, the cry from the Lord Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As He became sin for us and incurred the full weight of the wrath of God because of our sin. Moments later, he proclaimed these awesome words. It is finished. It stands finished. The work is done. The work that you've planned from before the foundation of the world. That I would be the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It is finished. He accomplished the task. He then uttered the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he breathed his last. He dismissed his spirit. A short time later, they took him off of that cross and wrapped him in tomb clothes and laid him in a tomb. He was buried. And he was in that tomb Friday evening, all day Saturday, and very early Sunday morning, the end of verse 4 takes place. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
the scriptures proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at a couple of passages. Luke chapter 24, please, Luke 24. We read this as part of our responsive reading this morning. I love all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection. This one is my favorite. I love the way that the angels say, why are you looking for someone who's alive in the place where people die? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The confidence that those angels had because they knew the God that made the promise. But we have the record here. Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed down uh, their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember? Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee? The Son of Man must do these things. He must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified. And on the third day, He must rise. He told you! But you know what, brothers and sisters, friend? This is not the first we've heard of this. In Psalm 16, it's a glorious text of Scripture. It's one of the places where we see a, a foreshadowing and a forecasting of a resurrected Messiah. It says this in Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, that's the grave, and let not your Holy One see corruption. You won't abandon me while I'm in the grave, and you won't let my body see corruption. You won't allow the Messiah to decay. Take a look now at Acts chapter 2. The apostles made appropriate application of Psalm 16 regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of the fact that the Scriptures foretold and proclaim that Jesus is a resurrected Jesus. We don't celebrate the death and burial of Jesus. We celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, take a look please, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made me to know the paths of life. You will make me glad, or excuse me, full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of what? The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. Listen, listen to what he says next. This, this, this is important. This is a record. He says, and of that we all are witnesses. In other words, he's talking to people that saw this deed take place. They saw Jesus on a cross and they saw that he was no longer in the tomb. We're all witnesses of this. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you have you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So we see the Scriptures proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. We see it in all four of the Gospel accounts, this record. We see the forecast of it just from one of the passages in Psalm 16. And then the affirmation of it in Acts chapter 2. We see this. It's, It's clearly proclaimed in the Scriptures. Secondly, as we further our discussion, and we're heading back to 1 Corinthians 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15, it was on 961 in your church Bibles. The second item of our discussion is the disciples were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Take a look back in 1 Corinthians 15, now in verses 5 through 11. So we'll start in verse 4 again, just so we can sense the flow again, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe." He's speaking of the eyewitness accounts here. First Peter, Cephas, then some others, then some others, then some others, then some others. This is good news. This is good news. These people, and I don't want to steal my thunder for the next point, but these people laid their lives out on the line with this message. Take a look, please. We're going to look at a couple other passages. Now, uh, we're in, in 1 Corinthians. We're heading over to the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 20, as we consider the disciples as eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Take a look, beginning in verse 11. 
John 20, 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She heard the name. She had heard Jesus call her name out before. And this, it's like the scales fall off. I know who this is. Can you imagine that experience? Here she is, brokenhearted. The one that she worshipped was crucified and missing. And suddenly there he is, right before her face. What an incredible thought. Look down at verse 19 now. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. <laughs> Could anyone have written that in any more low-key fashion? Yeah, so they were kind of happy. They saw Jesus. I, I think that that's um, maybe not quite telling the whole tale, um, but it's, it's the record. It's, this is God's word. I'm not trying to criticize. It. I'm just saying, like, I think maybe you could put some more enthusiasm into that, and they were glad that they saw the Lord. Um, moving on, verse 21, Jesus said uh, to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is just, this is, this is incredible. Now, if, you're, if you don't believe the Bible, then maybe it just, it's just a story to you and that's, that's, you're going to stand accountable to, to that. When I read this, I want you to just think about this. The disciples are alone, locked, 
Jesus comes in, peace be with you, has an encounter, he leaves. Thomas, Thomas comes by, hey, uh, what's going on, guys? We saw the Lord. <sighs> yeah, whatever. Um, if, 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 I, if I'm going to believe that, I'm going to have to touch him. I'm going to touch where the wounds were. Put my hand in his side. Who is Jesus physically present? Did someone tell the tale to Jesus? I don't know. Eight days later, locked in a room, somehow Jesus gets in. He's, the, he's a good pick lock. He, he knows how to do that. Either that or he can walk through walls. Either that or he's the God-man in a resurrected body. And he comes in and he says, Thomas, I want to have a conversation with you. You said you needed, you needed me to show you something. Come on over here. Let's do this. That's incredible. We, we, we lose some of our awe of these truths because we read them and we've heard them and we're get, we get used to this. I'm not going to do it, but like, if I try to run through that wall, what do you suppose is going to happen? It's going to be kind of ugly. Do you know what's going on in another part of the world right now? Someone's talking about you. You know what's happening? You don't know. This, this is just incredible. Jesus is just constantly demonstrating that he is, he is God. He is God in the flesh, and now God raised unto life. Take a look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're talking about the disciples being eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. The truth claims of Jesus that He said He was going to be delivered. He was going to be crucified. He was going to be raised from the dead. His truth claims are coming to full demonstration in time and space. In Acts chapter 1, look at verses 1-3 through with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, that was the book of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. Verse verse 3, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, or in some versions, many infallible proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The Scriptures proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in our discussion, the apostles staked their lives on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take a look back in 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. The apostles staked their lives on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to just point out a few verses in this for our consideration. It says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed, proclaimed as raised from the dead, well, who's doing this proclaiming? The apostles are. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has been raised, then our preaching, excuse me, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So our preaching, the, the ones that stand before you, that are, that are representing, in theory, God to you, our preaching is empty if Jesus is not raised. They're staking their lives on it. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. It's not just that we're liars, we're lying about God. 
because we testified that about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise up, if it is true, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So they're staking their lives on it. And certainly, they've already told you in verses 3 and 4 that this is the gospel. This is the gospel. I delivered it to you, verse 3, as of first importance, what I've received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So they laid their lives down. The disciples and apostles lost their lives ultimately as a result of their willingness to proclaim a resurrected Christ. You know, there's, there's a certain point that, that people go to cover their own tracks, right? You know, your reputation's a little bit marred if you, if you, don't, if you don't keep up the face. If you don't keep up your story. But there's a point at which you say, all right, well, the story's not worth it anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back out now. Isn't that what would happen if, you know, it comes now to your life? Is Jesus raised or is he not raised? He's raised. Take my life. They, they lay their lives out. This is, this, is, this is one of the elements that gives us great confidence in the resurrection of Christ. As we look a little further, back in 1 Corinthians 15 again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of our hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of our hope. And so there's this interchange in verses 12 through 20 where we saying, well, you're saying that the dead aren't raised. Well, if that's the case, well, then I'm wasting a lot of time. Uh, God, God didn't tell the truth. We're lying about God. Our faith is in vain, and we are of all men most pitiful. We, we're, our, our lives are a sham and, a, and of no use. This is the interchange that's going on in this section. But as you get toward verse 19, look what it says. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is a low point in the chapter. But wait a second. It's also a turning point. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. I want you to think about that verse. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Well, what does that do for me? What, what does this accomplish for me? Well, that's what he tells us in the next few verses. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first of more to come. He's the first bite of the crop, but there's more crop. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each... In his own order, listen, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, and we recognize that he's the first of many more to come, he then contrasts how, because of the sin of Adam, death passed upon all men. 
Because of Adam's sin, all men are sinners. Also, by the obedience of one and the resurrection of one, all who are in Christ, who belong to Christ, have a a confident expectation of eternal resurrection. A resurrection to eternal life. He is the basis of our hope. Listen to what Romans 8.11 says. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your... What does it say? Mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He'll give life. You will also be raised unto life eternal. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 3, listen to what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a, what's it say? Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides us with a confident expectation that all who are God's people, those who have trusted Christ as their only means of eternal salvation will be raised to eternal life. Do you realize that we need God to accomplish that? Resurrection unto life? Can you raise yourself unto life? So it's, it's very easy to understand that being resurrected from the dead requires God's supernatural intervention, His supernatural power. We also must realize, in order for God to resurrect us on that day, it means that He had to first do something else that was impossible. You realize we need God to accomplish the impossible during our lives, before He does the impossible, after our lives is over? In order to be assured of being resurrected as Jesus Christ our Savior was, We need to have spiritual life. There's no eternal life after death if there is no spiritual life during time, during our life. We are not born spiritually alive. This runs contrary to certain religions, and it certainly runs contrary to humanism. Humanism says that there's a spark of divinity in all of us. There's something good intrinsically in all of us. Well, the Bible, the Bible will have no such conclusion. We are born spiritually dead. This is also not well liked, this statement. We are not born as children of God. Offspring of God, yes. There's a great difference between offspring and children. Offspring means he's the one that created us and gave us life. He's the one that has, has brought us into being. But being his children means we have a right to his inheritance. We've been adopted as his own children. We have all the rights and privileges. We are not born as children of God. And here's another one that probably doesn't strike well with everyone. We are not born at peace with God. Because we are born spiritually dead, and the reason we're born spiritually dead is because 
sin passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Because sin dwells in us and we act upon that sin, we are at odds with the Lord. We're not as children, we're not spiritually alive, and we are not at peace. As Jesus told Nicodemus, we must be born again. We must be born again. I want to tell you the good news. I want to tell you the good news. This is our last outline point. Are you ready for it? Yes, you are. Don't say no. God is able to bring life where there is death. God is able to bring life where there is death. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. As we look through Ephesians chapter 2, I'll just break it down into three subsections briefly. And as we read the first three verses, here's what I want us to notice. I want us to notice in verses 1 through 3 that we're born spiritually dead. Verse 1, Ephesians 2 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Can we conclude from verses 1-3 one, one that we're born in sin and born dead spiritually? I think it's very clear. Now in verses 4-7, through seven, I want for us to notice this. Who changes all of that? Who changes that? We're born in spiritually dead, marked and marred by sin. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. In verses 1 through 3, we're born spiritually dead. Verses 4 through 7, but God, God, God changes this. God can bring life where there is death. I cannot bring life where there is death. You cannot bring life where there is death. I can't raise my own dead spirit. Only God could bring life. God, in His wonderful love, in His astounding grace, brings forth life where there is death. It says that He raised us up. It says that He uh, seats us together with Christ. This is a work of God. How? What's involved? Verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 tells us what's involved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God demonstrates His grace. This is unmerited favor. In other words, He looks upon us in love. 
What is the avenue to accessing this grace? It says in verse 8, it's through faith. Through faith. We access God's grace through faith. And that faith itself is a grace gift. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But faith in what? Faith in what? It's faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life. Why the life? Because Jesus took on flesh. He tabernacled among us. He declared to us the Father. He authenticated His messianic claims and His deity through many, many signs and wonders. He demonstrated Himself to be God and man. And in this demonstration, He also was obedient to the Father and obedient to the law of God. He lived flawlessly, perfectly, sinlessly in our stead because none of us live flawlessly, perfectly, sinlessly. So Jesus' life and then His sacrificial death as He places His life on the line as a substitute for a sinner like me. His burial indicating His actual death and His resurrection indicating what? Victory. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory over Satan. Victory over my sin. Victory over my death. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Salvation is always and only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Alone. This is why we celebrate the resurrection week in and week out, day in and day out. We, we studied the first half of 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. I want to remind you of verses 1 through 4. Listen to what it says again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God brings life where there is death. He does so in accordance with His amazing grace. I want you to to just pause for a moment. When Jesus was on the cross, was He bearing your sin? Did God count your sin against Christ when He was on the cross? Did He become guilty for your sin when He was on the cross? Was He condemned by God? Judged by God for your sin when He hung on the cross? Jesus died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried, and He was raised the third day. If you know 
that your sin was attributed to Jesus Christ. He was proclaimed guilty. And you have turned from your sin, recognizing this is not going to gain me eternal life. This is not going to gain me what I need. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. God's amazing grace has been shed upon you. You've been counted perfect, righteous in His eyes. It's the only way to have eternal salvation. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you ever asked God to save you from your sin and to grant you eternal life? You can today. The Bible proclaims, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Minister your grace in us. Cause our hearts to rejoice in the salvation that we have experienced because of Jesus Christ. And Father, you know, you know the heart of each person in this room and each one that's listening. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that you would even this day, even this moment, help them to realize their desperate need for you to turn from their sin, repent, and turn to Jesus, to call upon the name of the Lord, and to receive from you forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.